Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Today, I have Patrick Carroll on. He is the editorial fellow or an editor editorial fellow for the Foundation for Economic Education. And I had the privilege to work with him a little bit while I was a Hazlitt fellow uh, earlier this year. And yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this one. I, I decided to bring him on to talk about uh, an article he wrote called A Young Montana Entrepreneur is Being Legally Barred from Hauling Trash Because Established Players Don't Want the Competition. Um, and he writes, if, if it sounds crazy that established players get a say on who is allowed to compete with them, well, it should. And uh, I've been meaning to get Patrick on the show for a while. And since he wrote this story that is pretty close to home, I figured this is a perfect one for it. Um, so I'm happy to have you here, Patrick. Hey, Liam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, give a little background as to who you are. Yeah, I'm Patrick Carroll. Uh, I currently live in Guelph, uh, which is about an hour west of Toronto here in Canada. Um, I did a chemical engineering degree at the University of Waterloo, uh, but then kind of did a change of course and got into economics and started working with uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, uh, just over two years ago now. And so, yeah, I'm an editorial fellow there. Uh, so I do a lot of writing, editing, um, various other jobs, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, what, what originally interested you about economics and what made you transition from engineering to uh, economics? Yeah, so in early 2018, uh, right as I was finishing up my engineering degree, uh, I started diving into libertarianism. I'd never really looked into it before. I was kind of a typical progressive lefty, um, but there were a few pieces of legislation in Canada and in Ontario that really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, stuff on free speech, uh, just really uh, almost authoritarian kinds of policies. And, and they really forced me to rethink not just my politics, but my political philosophy and, and kind of like really rethink the, the principles um, that are driving the whole system. And so that's when I started uh, really uh, just going down rabbit holes on YouTube. Uh, I discovered Fee and the Mises Institute very early on and started reading a lot of their articles. And um, yeah, through, through a reading and, and watching and learning, uh, basically just came to be convinced that that uh, libertarianism was much more in line with with my personal values and uh, and kind of uh, alongside that uh, developed an interest in economics right once I started to think through the principles some of which we'll be talking about today competition monopoly entrepreneurship stuff like that um, some things just really started to click for me and the more they clicked the more I got interested and so uh, pretty soon I was reading Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson and, um, and, and many other books. And my interest just kind of kept going, especially once I learned that uh, the mainstream uh, economics field, uh, you know, doesn't get a lot of things right. And, and there's actually a, a lot to be questioned there. And so that just uh, propelled me further and further. I, I like to say I have an insatiable curiosity, uh, and, and especially about economics. So that's kind of how it got started. And the rest is history. And and I know you're a you're a fan of Jordan Peterson. So was that free speech bill that you're talking about the the bill C sixteen? Um, not no. So the the bill that got me um, really rethinking things was a bill in 2017, uh, where basically they made it illegal to protest within the vicinity of abortion clinics to protest abortion. Um, but certainly uh, bill bill C sixteen and, and Jordan Peterson uh, was also hugely influential on me. And, and Peterson was in many ways part of my journey to uh, to the libertarian philosophy. And yeah, so I've I've been consuming Peterson's content for a long time now and uh, definitely trying to incorporate his message of personal responsibility into my life. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I, I do want to bring you on um, maybe in a future episode to talk about Peterson. I, I just actually bought tickets. He He's coming to Montana. Um, so I'll, I'll be able to see him in person, which is is very exciting. But uh, for, for today's episode, I did want to talk about your article about the Montana entrepreneur being legally barred from hauling trash um, because his competitors protested his application for a certificate. Um, why don't Why don't we just dive in this into this article uh, first? How did you How did you find out about this story? Yeah, so um, being a writer, I like to find uh, stories from all across the world, and, and especially the U.S. And uh, but it can be difficult to come up with stories. Uh, I've realized a really good tactic for finding good stories is going to uh, some of these nonprofit legal firms like the Institute for Justice or in this case, the Pacific Legal Foundation uh, that do pro bono work on behalf of clients, basically advocating for their constitutional rights. And so uh, I was looking through the Pacific Legal Foundation's website and, and uh, came across this recent case uh, that they had just filed and said, oh, this would make a really good story. Like this is this is something people need to hear about and be aware about. And so that's how I stumbled upon the story. Sweet. Yeah. So who is Parker Noland um, and, and what is his story? Yeah. So Parker Noland is a young entrepreneur in, uh, I think, the northwestern corner of Montana. And um, at the age of 20, this was back in 2021, uh, he decided he wanted to start a business doing trash hauling. So uh, the model was pretty simple. Basically, he bought uh, a truck and a couple of dumpsters and he would take the dumpsters. This was the plan to construction sites. Right. They have a bunch of debris. Uh, they, they would fill the dumpsters and then he would haul the dumpsters to uh, the dump. And this is a pretty straightforward business model. A lot of people do it. Um, it's, it's meeting a need uh, that, that obviously exists in the community. And um, so, you know, he, he went to a bank, he got a loan, he, he got uh, the various um, insurance that he needed. He got his business license and he had everything set. Uh, and then right when he was about to start, uh, this was in the, the late summer of 2021, so last year. Uh, he got hit with a cease and desist order from the Man Montana Public Service Commission. And the reason they gave him that order was because he didn't have a certificate of public convenience and necessity. And basically, this is a uh, special certificate that uh, because he was a trash hauler, because of the, the class of license that he needed uh, to be in that business, um, he fell under this jurisdiction and needed this certificate. And so he was like, OK, I'll, I'll go apply for the certificate, right? Like it's one more piece of paperwork, whatever. Little did he know uh, this would be the beginning of a long legal battle. So the way the certificate law works is that incumbent uh, businesses, i.e. the big established garbage companies that are operating in Montana, um, have the right to challenge or protest the application of any newcomers who want a certificate to practice, in this case, trash hauling, um, in their kind of jurisdiction. And so these two big garbage companies, two of the biggest garbage companies in America, protested his application. And what they're allowed to do under the law is basically swamp him in uh, legal busy work and, and fees, right? And so they would issue things like data requests. And the, the whole pretense for this law is, oh, well, you need to prove that there's a need. Uh, you need to prove that there's a necessity for your service. We can't just let entrepreneurs compete willy-nilly, right? And so what ended up happening is they swamped him in uh, various requests. And you know, eventually, there would have been a formal hearing and stuff like that. Uh, to, to the point where he, he just couldn't keep up with his legal fees. And so after about two months, he said, forget it. This is impossible. Um, and, and so he withdrew his application. And so to this day, he, uh, as far as I'm aware, is ready and willing uh, to start his uh, trash hauling business as, as an entrepreneur. 
but basically because these incumbent companies don't want the competition and the government uh, is like giving them an opportunity to swamp him in legal fees, um, basically he's not allowed to compete. And so it, it's a very protectionist, anti-competitive kind of policy. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a story that I think really needs to be told that this kind of thing is even happening in, in America. So often people think, oh, you know, we have a, a mostly free market. It's like in a lot of cases, and, and this is a prime example, we really don't. Yeah, and I, I am interested to know if you have any more insights into like what the, the hearing is like, like what the official process is like, because when I was reading this, that they had the ability to protest and then his legal expenses started to climb as a result. I'm like, is there actually like a formal process behind this protest? What is what is the uh, what are the companies essentially doing to Parker that that make it too expensive for him to continue? Mm hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation uh, noted that in the previous roughly three years, there were eight uh, applications filed for this certificate in the state of Montana. Of those eight, all eight were protested. Um, four were withdrawn because of the protest. One was denied. Two were granted the certificate only after they agreed to reduce the scope of their business, i.e. less competition. Um, and then they, they tell the story in, in the file, in the complaint, of the one successful applicant who didn't have to reduce the scope of their business. And they highlight some of the steps that this uh, group called LNL Site Services Inc. had to go through. So they say, um, after a lengthy legal fight before the commission, which involved its extensive discovery, which is basically a request for information, including 13 supplemental responses to Allied Waste Services data requests, that's one of the big companies, uh, a five-day evidentiary hearing requiring legal representation and contentious oral argument after all of that, then their application was granted over two dissenting votes. Oh, and by the way, the garbage company that protested their application, they've since filed a motion for reconsideration, which means there's going to be uh, an even lengthier process. So basically, uh, there's a hearing, there's a lot of legal paperwork about data requests. So uh, I'm assuming it's like uh, getting certain ducks in a row about data of, uh, you know, what your business is planning to do or, or where the, the consumers are. Kind of giving proof that that your business is needed in this area and so um yeah it, it really adds up uh parker noland was accruing thousands of dollars in counting in legal fees uh because of these kinds of requests so even if even if your your company and your certificate were approved uh they, they could file to essentially reverse this that that's what a motion for reconsideration would be yeah so so basically uh it's like appealing the ruling basically it's like okay you got your certificate for now but we're going to appeal this and, and say, well, maybe you should reconsider. And then, of course, it's a whole lengthy legal process again. And this new company, in the meantime, is constantly, uh, you, you know, on, on precarious ground. They don't know if they're even going to be allowed to continue practicing. Uh, and they've already sunk a bunch of financial costs uh, into just fighting this protest in the first place. So even if they do get approved, um, that still gives the incumbents a, a huge leg up over their competition. No, no. In the cases of where um, they have been asked to reduce their scope of business, is this just like maybe they operate in in one specific neighborhood as opposed to a whole area? Do you do you have any examples as to what reducing scope of business would be? Yeah, um, I didn't look into those cases too closely, but the sense that I got from PLF uh, is that basically what they said is is their original application was for uh, a wide area that that they were hoping to practice in to, to uh, provide trash hauling services for. And then after the protest, they basically kind of realized that um, the only way they were going to uh, 
get this application approved is if they convinced the uh, established garbage haulers uh, to back off. And the only way to do that would basically be to not be a threat, right? And so they intentionally restricted the scope of their business so that they were only focusing their business in areas where the incumbent companies didn't stand to lose a lot. And so they kind of said, okay, we'll agree to not compete with you in these main areas. We'll only um, run our trash hauling business in these uh, areas that aren't going to hurt you as much. And then uh, the applications were approved, arguably because they basically agreed to not compete. Yeah, and um, PLF, they, they describe this as a competitor's veto. Um, and, and to me, it's, it's very fascinating, even from the protectionist point of view, that this worldview, um, that the burden is actually on the person applying for a certificate and, and that it, it doesn't really seem like the, the competitors really have to prove much. It's just that they, they get to protest it and then the burden is on um, the new entrepreneur to prove that there, there is need. So that's fascinating in itself. Um, but, I, but I'm wondering if you can uh, steel man and, and kind of make the case for protectionism and for these, these kinds of uh, laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was looking into uh, the Certificate of Need Laws and Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity, uh, both in, in preparation for writing the article and, and also since. And it's a, it's a fascinating history. It gets rather uh, complex and technical pretty quickly, of course. But basically, um, there's a few different arguments that have been put forward. Some of them were put forward uh, more back in the 60s and 70s when these laws were introduced. Um, some have been for put forward in more recent decades. Uh, as a response to kind of changes. And it's like, okay, those first arguments didn't work, but now we have new arguments. Um, but two of the main ones that I came across, the first one, uh, it, it kind of, you can hear it in the, the name, certificate of need or certificate of public convenience and necessity. Um, there's this idea of need. Well, why is that important? The argument is that if we don't have these laws, uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be a proliferation of duplicative services. So basically, um, and, and this is often the case in the medical industry where you have con laws for, say, hospitals. Um, but this is also the case for, for trash hauling and various other industries uh, where these laws exist. Um, and the argument is if there's duplicative services, if, if there's basically an overabundance of supply in a given area, then that's actually going to increase costs. And the reason they say is, well, think about a hospital that adds a bunch of beds. Well, if there are multiple hospitals uh, that prop up in the same area and they all have tons of beds um, and there's too many hospitals and suddenly they can't fill all their beds, but the hospitals have already sunk all these costs uh, into, you know, building all of this capacity, this excess capacity. Um, and since insurance uh, in the case of the healthcare industry is, is largely kind of a cost plus model, basically the idea is that uh, these extra costs for these excess capacity services are going to translate into higher prices for consumers. And, and so the first argument that was put forward and continues to be put forward is that we, we can't have duplicative services because that's going to uh, harm consumers uh, because they're going to be forced to pay higher prices to pay for all of this excess capacity that isn't really being used. So that's the first argument. The second argument um, has to do with uh, access, right? And so obviously there are many uh, areas throughout the country and throughout different states that have uh, that are kind of underprivileged or have less access. This is especially true of rural areas, right? Um, you don't see a lot of hospitals in, in rural areas. You don't see maybe trash haulers operating out in the middle of nowhere, uh, at least not to the same extent that they do in, in more urban areas. And so the idea behind these laws is, 
legislators kind of said to themselves, if we can uh, restrict an entrepreneur's ability to build up um, additional services in these urban areas, then they're kind of going to be pushed out to these, these lower access regions um, just because they, they have nowhere else to go. And so the idea is that through these laws, we could actually increase access to services and, again, ultimately improving quality and lowering price uh, for people in more rural areas because uh, there won't be an overabundance in excess capacity in the urban areas. So those are two of the main arguments that are um, proposed, both in the name of consumer welfare, uh, one basically saying we need to control costs, uh, and if we have excess capacity, then costs and uh, therefore consumer prices are going to uh, go way too high. And then the other being that we need to ensure access for uh, rural areas, and that if we don't have these laws, then everyone's just going to crowd into their urban centers, and there's going to be no businesses uh, catering to the needs of rural people. And then in, in tackling the, the first argument, you you make the case that this isn't actually how prices work in your article. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you want to just tackle that first argument then? Yeah, for sure. So basically, it's a lot of very shoddy uh, economic reasoning, in my opinion, that's, that's being used to justify these laws. So uh, th- to the first point, uh, the argument about, oh, well, you know, hospitals in the case of the healthcare industry or, or trash haulers in the case of this story have sunk all these costs and, and so they're going to charge higher prices. Well, that's not how prices work. Most people understand prices are set by supply and demand. And if you have a proliferation of supply, if anything, that's going to lead to lower prices, right? Um, and, and this is simply because of competition. When you have multiple firms uh, competing in, in a certain area and there's lots of supply on the table, well, now consumers have choices and they can say, well, this person's giving me $30 a night, you know, what, what can you do to match? And, and, and so we see uh, time and again across industries that um, increasing supply, all else equal, tends to lead to uh, a lowering of prices. And it's not true that businesses can just pass on their costs to the consumer, right? If you built an extra hospital with a bunch of empty beds, it's not the case that you can just say, okay, I'll just hike my prices to cover my costs. Well, who's going to pay those high prices? There's cheaper hospitals down the road, right? And, and so what is more likely to happen is that you are just gonna suffer losses as an entrepreneur for making a miscalculation and for coming into an industry uh, that already had a sufficient supply. And so if you have empty hospital beds, um, you're not just gonna be able to pass that cost on the consumer, you're gonna be forced to accept uh, a lower price um, because consumers aren't gonna pay you more. And and so this will be a loss for you as the entrepreneur, uh, but a, a boon to the consumers who now have plenty of choices and thus um, don't have to worry uh, about being gouged the way they might if uh, there was a restriction of competition. And then, and then to the the second argument, you say that um, the to the argument that like uh, we should redirect these people towards more rural areas, and that we should restrict the market in more urban areas to push them out outside of these uh, areas that haven't been saturated yet. Um, mm-hmm. You you kind of make the the case that like the whole purpose of being an entrepreneur is is to find markets that that haven't been saturated yet. Um, so, do you want to kind of explain that? Yeah. So, uh, kind of two points. Um, the the first one is exactly that that the market already does this, right? If you think about how entrepreneurship works, an entrepreneur looks at the market and asks themselves, "What needs are not being filled right now?" Obviously, an entrepreneur isn't going to come in and directly compete with uh, a need that's already being filled because probably the incumbent has an advantage in terms of brand awareness and right what an entrepreneur tries to do is it tries to say where's the niche 
Where can I fit? What's not being served right now? Because they know that that's what's going to make them the most profits, right? So if it is actually true that a certain urban center is quote unquote saturated, um, then any entrepreneur who tries to set up shop there is going to in, in, um, incur losses. And more likely, uh, at least the savvy entrepreneurs are going to say, you know what? This market is saturated. The market that's not saturated is this rural market over here. I'm going to go there because that's where the profits are, right? So the market already has a built-in mechanism to reward entrepreneurs that uh, establish businesses in uh, lower access regions and that punish entrepreneurs for creating a quote-unquote excess capacity. Um, so that's the first point to make is that um, this is unnecessary because the market already does this and, and I would argue does it even better than, than these laws could do. But not only is it unnecessary, it's actually counterproductive. Take the case of Parker Noland, right? Um, Noland lives in what I understand is a relatively rural um, area in Montana, and yet he's still being uh, prevented from competing, from setting up shop by these large established firms, right? There was a demonstrated need. Noland had construction companies coming to him saying, look, these big established firms aren't picking up our, our bins on time in a timely manner. And Nolan's truck um, gave him the ability, because it was a bit smaller, uh, to service certain areas that uh, the large established firms couldn't service, like weren't even servicing at all, right? And so if there is ever a clear case of an entrepreneur serving in a lower access region, it's Parker Noland, right? And yet we see that in this very story, con laws, or, or in this case, the, the public... Um, Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity Law is being wielded by the incumbents to restrict access in these underserved rural low access areas, right? So not only is this law unnecessary, but it's actually counterproductive, right? Uh, the, the very law that was theoretically designed to help um, provide more access to trash hauling services in rural areas that need them, um, is actually doing the exact opposite. It's restricting the Parker Nolans of the world who are trying to expand this capacity, but can't because the incumbent uh, garbage companies won't let them. And, and so I think it's just uh, fascinating and really telling uh, about the actual impact of these laws when we see these stories uh, of Parker Noland. And, and I think it just shatters the case um, that was made about rural access. Yeah, and then to, to close out your article, you you quote from Murray Rothbard uh, in, in Power and Market on certificate of certificates of convenience and necessity. And I was wondering if you have that quote in front of you, um, do you want to just unpack it and, and maybe share it with the audience? Sure. So I was um, shocked to find out that Rothbard actually addresses these in particular. I hadn't even heard of these. Um, I'd heard of con laws, but I hadn't heard of certificate of um, public convenience and necessity specifically. Rothbard draws uh, points those laws out by name in uh, power and market. So I'll read the quote. He says, Certificates of convenience and necessity are required. Um, keep in mind, this was written in, I think, the 60s or 70s. Anyways, um, certificates of convenience and necessity are required of firms and industries, such as railroads, airlines, etc., regulated by governmental commissions. These act as licenses, but are generally far more difficult to obtain. This system excludes would-be entrants from a field, granting a monopolistic privilege to the firms remaining. Furthermore, it subjects them to the detailed orders of the commission, since these orders countermand those on the free market, they invariably result in imposed inefficiency and injury to the consumers. Uh, so Rothbard goes ahead and, and just calls this exactly what it is, a monopolistic privilege granted by the state to the incumbents, um, basically protecting them from competition. And that combined with the fact that in many cases, uh, the state regulates 
how these uh, businesses must operate. Uh, that is, again, of course, contramanding the wishes of the consumers. We know that in a free market, uh, consumers, through their buying and abstention from buying, uh, determine how uh, firms conduct their business. If, if consumers want more trash hauling in this area as opposed to that area, then they're going to patronize those businesses more uh, that, that serve their needs best. And, and then we'll see a shift in resources, right? Or if they want uh, different kinds of services, whereas when we have the government kind of saying, this is the kind of service you must provide, well, if that's not what consumers want, then uh, tough luck for the consumers. So I, I just found it fascinating that Rothbard just calls this right out as the monopolistic privilege that it is and completely anti-competitive and, and completely uh, against the spirit of the free market. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you you make a comment about like the, the spirit of entrepreneurship and how uh, America was built by the Parker Nolans of the world, young entrepreneurs full of dreams and ambitions. It would be a shame if we strangled that spirit with red tape. Um, and I thought that that was a, it was a great conclusion to that article. And um, specifically regarding Montana, I think Montana has actually been really great in, in red tape reform. There's, there's actually this red tape relief effort going on by the governor office, governor's office in Montana. And um, during the last legislative session, we actually repealed a lot of con laws um, mm -hmm. as, as it pertained to the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the healthcare field, for, for people who don't know, um, people would have to go to these county boards to determine need for, for a new healthcare facility. And, and Montana um, largely re repealed a lot of the rules around that. So uh, I think Montana is kind of spearheading the effort for free market reform in healthcare. And for anyone who's interested on information ab about those laws, I actually interviewed Kendall Cotton, the, the president of the Frontier Institute, and I'll, I'll link to that, that video uh, in the description. But another thing that the Montana legislature is looking at is um, reform as it pertains to food trucks and zoning laws and licensing requirements um, in Montana. And, and you have an article uh, not related to Montana law, but it's a North Carolina story of, of this guy who is suing a local government because of anti-competitor laws. And even though it isn't pertaining to Montana specifically, I, I think it is very related and, and can kind of give some insights into that effort going on in this session this, this upcoming year. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just break down that story and, and tell the story of those food truck um, owners. Absolutely. Uh, so Hopping over to uh, the Institute for Justice, they recently um, filed a lawsuit against the town of Jacksonville, North Carolina, uh, on behalf of some food truck owners. So Jacksonville, uh, for many years, has been very anti-food truck. Uh, food trucks were practically prohibited uh, all the way up until 2021, just recently. And only in response to public pressure did officials finally say, okay, we'll relax the laws and, and uh, legalize food trucks in, in the town. However, the devil's in the details. Uh, though they technically legalized food trucks, if you look at the laws, um, they placed all sorts of restrictions on where food trucks are allowed to operate, how they can advertise their business, uh, the permitting fees that are involved. And uh, basically, these laws, it looks like, were specifically designed to make it impossible for food trucks to compete with established brick-and-mortar restaurants. So we have a very similar case of protectionism um, here. The way it worked is uh, the city was under pressure 
um, by these brick and mortar restaurants to uh, basically pass these restrictions and say, look, if we're going to legalize food trucks, well, let's do it. But as long as they don't compete with us, right? As, as long as our, our business is, is safe. And so there's rules about um, the distance that a food truck can be to a brick and mortar restaurant or even to another food truck. Um, there's rules about signage. Food trucks are only allowed one five by five foot A-frame sign. And it has to be within 20 feet of the truck, and, right? And, and then uh, the permitting fees, in the name of quote fairness, um, the town said, well, we're going to make the food truck permit fees uh, approximately equivalent to what a brick and mortar restaurant would pay in property tax, right? Uh, of course, this is extremely unfair. A food truck's a very different kind of business, and, and that's a very high um, permit fee for, for a food truck. And, and the whole point is that that's part of their entrepreneurial competitive edge is, is that um, they don't have, uh, you know, you know, these kinds of, of burdens that a brick and mortar restaurant has. Anyways, the, the long and the short of it is through these uh, regulations, the, this, the, the town has stacked the deck uh, against food trucks. And so um, a couple of food truck owners in particular, uh, as well as a business owner who would like to host those food trucks on her property, but is uh, not allowed to host those food trucks on her property because of these laws, um, they are suing the town uh, for violating the, uh, I think, the North Carolina Constitution, uh, which basically guarantees rights to, you know, not have protectionism happening, um, even though this is pretty blatantly uh, protectionism. And so that's the story in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Now, I'm sure a lot of the arguments um, here are, are the same that, that apply to the prote protectionism in the other article, but I'm I'm wondering if you can just steel man the case for these types type of protectionist laws too. Absolutely. So uh, in this case, um, it's hard, it, it's a guessing game, right? Uh, about the motivation for these laws. It's always like, okay, like, is this a consumer welfare thing? Is this just cronyism? Because in a lot of cases, it's just cronyism, right? Where, um, you know, someone has a friend in the, the city council or whatever, and it's like, oh, well, I'm going to be nice to my friend by passing laws that help his business. Um, obviously, I don't want to assume uh, bad motives. As you said, steel manning uh, is a really great approach, right? It's like, okay, even if it's true that cronyism is what's going on here, like, let's steel man the case. Let's say, assume the best of intentions, you know, what, what could they be doing? And uh, the approach I take in the article is to say, I think um, their intentions here are actually protecting established businesses, but that there's a charitable interpretation that maybe they're genuinely concerned for the well-being of these uh, brick and mortar restaurant business owners, the workers at those restaurants, maybe the customers at those restaurants, because it's true that if you let food trucks compete willy nilly, um, there will be competition and it's possible these brick and mortar restaurants could actually go out of business. And so I think the steel man case is that these city councillors are like, yes, this is protectionism, but this protectionism is needed to preserve our city. We, what, what do we want just to let these businesses go under? Do we want to just, you know, have a bunch of empty stores, um, would, wouldn't that be really bad for the local economy? Certainly it would be bad for the business owners and, and the workers at those brick and mortar restaurants. I don't think anyone argues that. And so I think the steel man case is what, what, what about the losers here? Like, shouldn't we be concerned about their welfare? And, um, and I think that, you know, regardless of whether that's true, that's a charitable interpretation of what the city council is doing that, um, we ought to be able to respond to. And then, in, in response to these arguments, you make the case that they're they're not looking at the long run consequences of of such laws, and and you you talk about Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. Um, so yeah, do you want to just tackle that argument? Yeah, totally. So uh, when I first read 
uh, economics in one lesson um, about four years ago, one of the lines that really stood out to me uh, was the line that I use in the article here. And he was talking about um, this idea of creative destruction. Um, and the idea of creative destruction is that uh, businesses dying can actually kind of be good for an economy because that frees up labor and capital that can then be used by an entrepreneur in a different industry to do something different uh, and, and better, right? And so he has this great quote, he says, uh, paradoxical as it may seem to some, it is just as necessary to the health of a dynamic economy that dying industries be allowed to die as that growing industries be allowed to grow. The first process is essential to the second. So Hazlitt's whole book, of course, is about looking at long run and secondary consequences. And he talks about how a lot of economic fallacies come from the fact that we don't look at those uh, secondary consequences. So in this case, you know, the short run is we want to protect these established firms. But the question I ask in the article is, what are the long run consequences? Well, in a lot of cases, the long run consequence is you protect uh, a business that, though it was once probably a great business, is slowly, you know, kind of decaying and, and not really serving consumers as well as it once did, right? And and so it's, it's using up capital, right? There's, there's a building, there's maybe vehicles, um, there's, there's labor that's all being tied into this line of production that maybe isn't as useful as it once was. And, and if the business is taking losses, then that's an indication that the, the business is essentially destroying economic value. It's destroying resources, right? It's uh, consuming, say, you know, $100,000 um, in, in resources to, to conduct its business, but then it's producing $80,000 in revenue. Well, you know, that's um, that's not serving consumers. And so the problem is, if you protect a bunch of businesses like this in perpetuity, then you get a very stagnating economy. And the alternative, um, which is what Hazlitt's kind of pointing to, is we let these businesses fail. Yes, that's painful in the short run, but then the resources are liquidated, right? They're sold at a very low price to an entrepreneur. That entrepreneur comes in and he creates something new something fresh, something that better serves the needs of consumers, right? Suddenly there's new life in the town. There's, there's new opportunities, there's growth. Maybe it won't be a restaurant industry. Maybe it'll be an entertainment industry. Maybe it'll be a uh, business, you know, whatever um, serves the needs of the town the best. But the point is this, this kind of cycle, right? Uh, has it talks about a dynamic economy. And I really like this, um, this metaphor of both dynamism versus uh, being static and also this health idea, right? We all know that to be healthy, you can't be stagnant. You can't sit still you need to be progressing, you need to be moving and growing, right? And the same is true of an economy. Uh, obviously, we don't want to artificially grow, but there's a natural growth to an economy, right? We look at um, when the horse and buggy was replaced by the car, right? Uh, and, and this is an example that Hazlitt uses. We needed to let the horse and buggy industry die, right? There was a ton of capital and labor being tied up in that industry. And if we like tried and tried and tried, oh no, what about the horse and buggy um, workers? You know, What about the owners of the horse and buggy industry? Won't they suffer? Well, yes, but if we never let that industry die, then we will, we would never have the horseless carriage, the, the car, right? Um, and, and the same is, is true for uh, technical innovation, uh, but just the economy in general, right? Um, there are very often outdated uh, ways of doing things, outdated kinds of businesses, um, and the proof that they're outdated is that they're taking losses, that they're no longer competitive, which means they're no longer serving the needs of consumers as well as they once were. And when that happens, as Hazlitt and, and many other economists uh, tell us, Joseph Schumpeter, of course, being one of the main proponents of this idea, we need to let that capital liquidate, let that destruction happen so that we can create something new, something better, like the automobile, maybe like the food truck, right? I don't know if food trucks are uh, a better business model than brick and mortar. It, it probably depends on 
each specific context, and I don't have a vested interest in either one. What I do have a vested interest in is the free market competitive system, right? Because if we let the free market work, including destroying businesses creatively where, where needed, what's ultimately going to happen is that consumers are going to be in the driver's seat as opposed to regulators. Consumers are going to be able to say, this is the kind of product I want, this is the kind of product I don't want, as opposed to regulators saying, oh, well, you know, we have to preserve our city's economy exactly the way it's always been for 20 years because we can't have any change because wouldn't that incur losses? Well, yes, it would, but those losses in the grand scheme of things are negligible compared to the improvements that will come when we have a process of competition that is constantly leading to improvements and innovations uh, that will lead to lower costs and higher quality for consumers. Yeah, and you you say that this this is a necessary feature of capitalism because... And, and I really like that you say this, that consumers are fickle and, and their, their tastes evolve. Um, and, and really, you, you demonstrate by using a quote by Ludwig von Mises from Human Action that um, entrepreneurs are never free to relax. They must, they must constantly be uh, reacting to uh, the desires of consumers. And just like we did in, in the last article, um, if, if you want, you can uh, read through that quote if it's available for you. Absolutely. In front of you. Um, yeah, I was so happy that I was able to find this uh, quote in Human Action from Mises because it it is just a really good quote uh, that that debunks I think a lot of fallacies about how the market works and uh, illustrates um, th this idea. So he says, "It is an inherent feature of capitalism that it is no respecter of vested interests and forces every capitalist and entrepreneur to adjust his conduct of business anew each day." To the changing structure of the market. Capitalists and entrepreneurs are never free to relax. As long as they remain in business, they are never granted the privilege of quietly enjoying the fruits of their ancestors or their own achievements and lapsing into a routine. If they forget that their task is to serve the consumers to the best of their abilities, they will very soon forfeit their eminent position and will be thrown back into the ranks of the common man. Their leadership and their funds are continually challenged by newcomers. The newcomers' threatening competition forces the old firms and big corporations either to adjust their conduct to the best possible services of the public good, uh, sorry, to the best possible service of the public, or to go out of business. Uh, and, and so Mises just is fully saying, look, in, in the real, in the free market economy, um, there's no such thing as a, as a vested interest that can just rest back on its laurels and say, oh, well, you know, I've, I've done my work, I've earned my position. No, every day you've got to compete, you've got to serve the consumers. And the moment you don't, um, the, the consumers will, will dethrone you. They'll, they'll throw you out. But this is a feature of capitalism. This is a good thing because we don't want to preserve ineffective businesses. Yes, it sucks when businesses go out of business. I don't revel in, in the fact that people will fall on hard times because of that. But if we want a progressing economy, if we want to continually be um, better helping consumers, the only way is, is to um, constantly force entrepreneurs to compete and to either serve the needs of consumers as best as possible or step aside so that others can take that role. Sweet. Well, yeah, thank you so much for covering uh, these articles. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, if, if there's anything else that you'd like to say about these two articles, you you can. Otherwise, we, we can begin to wrap up. Yeah, um, just one last thing. I, I think it's easy to get focused on these individual stories, but I think there's a bigger takeaway here. And the bigger takeaway is it's so tempting to think that the government can fix the economy, that the government can help the economy, that with just the right regulations and, and just the right rules and in such and such an area that the government can kind of um, create prosperity. What we've learned from economics, what I think is true about economics is the exact opposite, that the best way 
to uh, help grow a prosperous economy is for the government to get out of the way, to, to stop restricting entrepreneurs, to stop putting up red tape and walls everywhere and saying, oh, no, you can't do that. Oh, no, you can't serve customers this way. Oh, no, you can't do, right? That is so stifling for an economy. And I think the broader takeaway that we need to have, um, not just in food trucks, not just in trash hauling, uh, not even just in, in these policy areas, but in, in our general view of the economy, needs to be, let's get government out of the way. Let's free up people so that they can pursue opportunities to innovate and, and to uh, try new things and, and start new businesses. And I think if we take that kind of an approach to policy, as opposed to a central planning restrictionist kind of approach, I think that's going to be the key to economic prosperity, not just in these fields, uh, but in every industry. Yeah, well, I, I really share the sentiment and I hope I hope you as an audience uh, enjoyed this episode and, and took a lot of these principles away from it. And I would encourage everyone to go check out Patrick's work at the Foundation for Economic Education. I'll, I'll link to um, those articles here in the description below. Um, and then to any other links that Patrick provides me. Um, is there is there anything else that you want to say um, or anywhere else that the audience can find your work? Absolutely. Um, best way to find my work is to just go to fee.org. Um, we have all our stuff there. You can also find me on Twitter at PatrickC1995. Awesome. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thanks, Liam.